That song says it all, doesn't it? A God who would come to us in our broken and sad and pitiful state. Who is a God like that? A big God, yet a near God. I don't know about you, when Google Earth came out, I was infatuated by it. I would zoom all the way out so I could see the whole world, and then I would go to the little search bar and type in my address, and hit enter, and then skydive, right, through the Google atmosphere, right to my continent, right to my country, right to my state, right to my town, right to my street, right to my house. There's something about that that was evacuating. The bigness, and yet the littleness. Being so far away, and yet being so close. The whole world, and yet me and my house. You know, that's what Christmas is all about. It's about the bigness of God and the nearness of God. The passage we're going to take a few moments, and I promise it will just be a few moments, to meditate on this, this evening is Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. I'm not going to reread that. The Kirk's just read it for us. But you can look at it in your bulletin as I talk about it. This passage is a great Google Earth passage. It starts off with something so big, a big person with a big vision. This big person is Caesar Augustus. And his big vision is to count up every single person in his empire. And as this big plan unfolds, the passage kind of starts to zoom in on a very insignificant couple in an insignificant town who are about to give birth to a seemingly insignificant baby. The passage passage contrasts big and little, far away and really near, all to show us one thing. Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, just like every other passage in the Bible, is there to show you the love of God. There's three points I want to make, because I'm a preacher, and preachers make three points. Two are relevant, one's irrelevant. (laughs) The three points are this. A big God, a near God, and a loving God. A big God. Let's talk about that for a moment. Caesar Augustus was the first emperor of the Roman Empire. He was known as citizen number one, or the first citizen of Rome. Caesar Augustus was a man who was known for his ability and success in leading people, in his military conquests, and in his vision. And his vision was this. He wanted to unite an entire empire. How was he going to do that? Well, he promised two things. Hope. The hope of a government that would hear the people. And peace. Pax Romana was the peace of Rome. Some historians call this peace, peace with a whip. Because if you stood up against Caesar Augustus, to be sure your demise was secured, you would meet a swift and usually terrible end. 
Caesar Augustus was an impressive and successful man. And he was treated like a god. In fact, Caesar Augustus means revered one. And he was known throughout all of the empire as the Holy One, or the Savior of the earth. This is the backdrop. This man, this big personality with a big vision is the backdrop to this big decree. What's his decree? Like I said, it's to count up everybody. Why? To tax them. He needed their money. The savior of the earth, the holy one, the revered one, needed to burden his people in order to maintain power over his people. And this decree was about to reshuffle the whole known world and would result in the growth of Caesar's wealth. More money meant more soldiers. More soldiers meant more wars. More wars meant more land. More land meant a bigger empire. Yet, in all of Caesar's well-calculated and executed plans, unbeknownst to him, there was a cosmic plan unfolding. One where a king of the universe was going to come and live with his people. To give them real hope and to bring them real peace and to free them from all of their burdens. 700 years before Caesar Augustus made this decree, there was a Jewish prophecy. In the little town of Bethlehem, a baby was going to be born. And the baby was going to be born who was going to save the world because this baby was actually the real Holy One, the real Savior of the earth. And we've been reading about that all night. A big God was orchestrating not just the decree that Caesar had come up with, but he was orchestrating all of history to come to this point. Later on in the Bible, in a book called Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4, it says this, in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ was born to a virgin, born under the law. Good news came at the right time, and it was embodied in Jesus Christ, who was fully man and fully God. The bigness of God and the nearness of God. I want to stop there for a moment. The bigness of God. That he is orchestrating all things, not just for Caesar, but for you. Why are you here tonight? Maybe somebody invited you. Maybe you're part of this church plant. Maybe somebody guilted you. Maybe somebody pleaded with you. Maybe this is just what you do on Christmas Eve. God has something bigger for you. He has orchestrated everything for you to be here. He's also orchestrated every situation and circumstance in your life right now. Whatever that is, whether it's good, whether it's hard, whether it's difficult, whether it's easy, whether it's joyful, whether it's sorrowful. And I know some of you are experience, experiencing real sorrow. God, a big God, is in control of all of it. He knows it, and he knows you. But he also knows this. He knows what you really need. And you don't just need a big God. You need a near God. A God who comes to you, who knows you, who sees 
sees you. And so that is where this passage zooms in. You have this big decree by a big Caesar, but what you really have is a big plan by a big God. And as the passage zooms in, you see people scurrying all around. They're going to their hometowns for the census. And then it zooms in even more on Joseph. As Joseph lifts up his fiance and puts her on the back of a donkey, the passage continues to zoom in on a bump. That bump is the nearness of God. Point number two, a near God. The baby that Mary carries has caused a lot of debate, division, and sadly, even destruction in our history. For the Bible says that the baby that Mary was carrying was conceived when she was a virgin and is God in human form. This baby born in a nowhere town to nobody parents in a nowhere stable his name is Jesus, and who Jesus is, is God himself, and he reveals to us how close God would come to his people. Thomas read to us from Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, it says this, this is how close God would come to you, that he will not take, Jesus. it says Jesus will not take equality with God, a thing to grasp, but instead he humbles himself. Humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Because he was thinking about you more than he was thinking about himself. The humiliation of Christ, seen in the circumstances of his birth, reveals the closeness of God's heart to his people. It's everywhere, isn't it? The manger. You have it in people's yards. It's all cut out, right? You've got Mary and Joseph here bent over. There's little Jesus there in the middle. Maybe there's some other figures around, sheep or wise men or shepherds. It's everywhere. But have you ever thought about what that is? It's the humiliation of God that he would come and be born in a dirty manger. Why? For you. Because his heart is for you. He wants to be near you. Take your bulletin, close it up, look at the front. I don't know if you looked at it closely. That artwork is done by our very own Caleb Olszewski. Pretty much anything up here is done by Caleb Olszewski. We chose that quote and we modified it a little bit because the original English was really difficult to understand because it was old English. But think about those words. How how deeper can God go? Can he stoop? Can he humble himself? For it is one thing for a beggar to be asked to go and live with a king in his court, but there's something quite different, quite greater for a king to come and live with a beggar in his house. The king of the universe, through whom and for whom everything was made. The one who the Bible says was wrapped in splendor. Jesus, who is wrapped in light. He's now wrapped in rags. The one who sits 
high. It says in Psalm 113 that God sits high above the heavens. Jesus looks down on heaven and on earth, and yet he comes to us. And he is confined in a wooden box. The one for whom everything was made and through whom everything is made. Everything here is for Jesus. And there's no room for him in the inn. How humiliating. Can you see it? The humiliation, the complete humiliation of the God of the universe. Why would a big God of the universe take on a humiliating form like this? Because Jesus knew that he had to humiliate himself in order to save us. Because our humiliation was that deep. Our sin, something that we don't like to talk about much, our humiliation runs so deep that it took this level of humiliation from God to come and save us. You see, you and I are far more like Caesar than we are Joseph and Mary. We want to be God. We want to rule and we want to reign over our own lives. And just like Caesar, we are never satisfied. And therefore, we tax everyone around us, don't we? We want everyone else to feel our pain when we're not getting our way. We tax people with our sadness and with our anger and with our frustration and with our unmet expectations and with our disappointments. My friends, it's true. You feel it. And so do I. And we're certainly going to see it tomorrow morning after all the gifts are open and some little child says, that's it. <laughs> or maybe I'll say it. <laughs> we feel it. Our hearts are twisted. They're warped, and our hearts are restless. And God knows that. And He knows that your restless heart will never find rest. As much as you want to believe so desperately that this world will give you some sort of rest, it won't. And God knows that your restless heart will never find rest until it finds rest in Him. And He also knows that our disobedience. Our disobedience to this big God and our words and our deeds and our thoughts and our actions, they need a big Savior. Because we are so humiliated. And we would be, wouldn't we, if people knew what was going on inside of our heads. We would be humiliated. That we need a Christ, a Savior, who would humiliate himself that much. And yet sympathize with us. And yet be without sin for us. So that is why Jesus humiliates himself in his birth. To show us how far he would go. But Christ's humiliation doesn't stop at his birth. Because his cradle would never save us. Christ's humble birth only mirrors his humiliating death. A death on a cross. A death where he is placed upon something else that is wooden. A wooden cross where he hangs and dies for you. And he is once again wrapped in rags, but this time they're burial clothes. And he's once again laid somewhere, but this time in a tomb. 
he doesn't stay there. Because Christ's humiliation turns into his exaltation. Because on the third day, if you didn't know this already, it's kind of a spoiler alert. He raises from the dead. And he does that to show you that he came to you as a beggar in your cottage because he's going to take you to his court one day. And that's what Christmas is all about. A big God who'll come near to you. But why? Because he loves you. That's what one pastor says when people say, well, why would God love me? He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. That's it. Because God is love. I had a freak out moment a couple of days ago. I was, um, I was Googling this wreath. And I was like, what are each of these candles mean again? I don't remember what they mean. And I had already had the bulletins printed. And so I was looking at different websites. And some said, faith, hope, love, mercy, grace. I mean, all different things. And I was like, I don't know what, which one we did. What did we do? We did hope. We did faith. We did joy. We did peace. We didn't do love. Why don't we do love? Well, this worked better if these were lit. But the only reason we can light any of these is because of love. Because of God's great love for you. Where God so loved the world that he sent his only son for you. So that if you believe in him, you put your faith in him, you rest in him, then you will be saved. A big God who becomes a near God is all to show you that he loves you because he's a loving God. And that love at Christmas is the same love that promises to come back for you. So how do you take this gift well, you take it like any other gift. Because a gift is grace. You can't earn it, and you don't deserve it. Tomorrow morning, I'll be surprised if any of you open up a present from your loved one, look straight in their eye, and be like, I deserve this. <laughs> you would take it. You would receive it, and you would say what? Thank you. The gift of Jesus Christ in that cradle, the gift of Jesus Christ on that cross, the gift of Jesus Christ in that empty tomb can only be received with a grateful and faithful heart. My friends, Christmas reminds us of a big God who loves you and comes close to you. And my prayer is that this Christmas Eve, you will know in your mind and you will feel it in your heart that God loves you and that Emmanuel is with you and it will strengthen your faith and bring you comfort this Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a name. 
A night where once again, we have felt it. We have heard it. We have sung it. We have read it. That you are the God of the universe. You are the big God who has orchestrated all things in history to do two things. And that is to reveal your glory and to gather your people. And so this Christmas, as once again we look into that manger, we are reminded of the distance you would go for us. That that manger was just the beginning. For you went all the way to hell itself to save us. This Christmas, let that not be lost on us. Jesus, thank you for being willing to be humiliated in your birth and in your life and in your death, all so that one day we will get to spend eternity with you. Holy Spirit, stir up faith in us this Christmas. And as we sing together Silent Night, as we reflect and consider all that you have done for us this holy night, Lord, let us turn it back to you in gratitude. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.